But we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13. And if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, this is the chapter you've been looking for, right? The last one. Even want to guess how many weeks we've been in Hebrews? This makes 22. 22 weeks in Hebrews. You're saying, why don't you stay in it longer? Well, I just think it'd be sinful to be in it half a year, so i got to stop before we get to 26. And But then again, we're not through with this chapter yet either, are we? All right, so we'll get into this in just a moment. Let's stop and ask God to bless us tonight. Lord, I do thank you for the day. Thank you, Lord, for the time that we can get together in your house. Lord, I pray for people in this room that are that are weary, Lord, that might be from some things physically, emotionally, spiritually, Lord. Lord, I just pray you'd help them tonight. Lord, be of those who couldn't be with us tonight, Lord, may they feel your presence. But Lord, I do want to thank you for those that are just gathering together in this room for the next few moments. That the word of God would speak, it would pour down like rain, Lord, just help us to see what you have for us to see. Lord, may you take the veil away, that we might truly, as you say, behold wondrous things out of thy law. Be with those on the prayer list, Lord. Be with those that can't be here, Lord. Help them. Thank you for all you do in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I want to let you know I have really enjoyed studying Hebrews. I think this has been good. I don't know your take on it. I know it's done a lot with the tabernacle. If you've been coming a lot, you've heard me say tabernacle probably more than you've ever heard the word tabernacle before uh, with that. But I have really enjoyed studying this book and uh, just what we've been looking at and the different things. Uh, You ever sometimes start studying a book? And you kind of have ideas of what you're going to get out of it, but then God just gives you more and things you weren't planning on. That's Hebrews has really been that with me. And as much as I love 11 and 12, 13 is a very interesting chapter. And I don't know when the last time you might have read Hebrews chapter 13. I kind of associate it like this. How many of you have ever really needed to make a phone call, but your battery, your phone battery is about dead? Anybody ever do that? Like, or you have somebody on the phone and your phone just starts beeping like I'm about to die. Get it, but you still have like a lot more conversation. You're just trying to hurry up, say everything you can as fast as you can with that. And so you're cramming everything in because you know that phone's going to die any minute. I kind of feel like chapter 13 is what Paul's doing here. Chapter 13, Paul just covers a plethora of things. He's taking a lot of time with some other things back and forth. But um, when you get to this particular chapter... It's kind of like I said, somebody's really trying to tell you a story, and they're not done, and that phone's about to go off. And Because and, really, when you look at this chapter, and we're going to go through it, he basically tells them, you need to be hospitable to strangers, you need to visit those that are struggling, you need to guard your marriage, you don't need to love money, you need to watch out you don't do the tabernacle, you need to realize you're living in grace, and you need to trust Christ. And he just crams all of that in about 20 verses. Now you're like, every one of those could be its own message in itself. So when I read through this tonight, I don't want you to be like, wow, Phil's just all over the place. This is where the passage is, and this is Paul. Like, It's kind of like uh, I heard somebody say this one time. It's almost like if you knew this is the last time you're going to see somebody for a long time, like, and you all of a sudden found that out, you're like, I would tell you this, 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 and this. And, and I almost entitled this the benediction because there's actually two verses in this particular chapter that uh, verses 20 and 21, that you probably, if you're around me a lot, you hear me pray a lot. I like to pray verses. I like to pray, pray scripture. My father-in-law, and I know Brent's heard this many times, he prayed a lot, verses 20 and 21. In fact, so much that at his funeral, uh, I had the honor of doing the benediction at his funeral. 
and at the benediction, these are the verses that I read and prayed, and it was really just kind of just summed up his desire for, for what God wanted to do in his life. But I want us to see some things here as we look at it, and kind of right off the bat here, um, you kind of get at the very beginning, so I'm kind of letting you know, it's kind of like the church potluck, okay? This chapter is, you're going to get different things, and you grab some things, you're like, man, why is that there? But we'll just go through it, and Lord will help us here. But right off the bat, you kind of see the idea in these first three verses, this kind of the idea of our relationships. And the first part he wants to see here is our relationships with those who believe in Christ. So those that are saved. If you're in this room, you have a relationship with those that are in Christ, and hopefully you have a relationship with those that are without Christ or far away. Now, when the first thing we see here is this, and by the way, it's all I'm going to give you on the screen, so you, you can just see that, okay? I'm not going to give you anything else tonight. It was too hard to do all that. But, um, but the first thing he wants us to see right off the bat is our relationships with those that are in Christ. You ready for the big verse? Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Now you're like, Phil, tell me you ain't about to preach 30 minutes on let brotherly love continue. No, because realistically, we could preach days about this. He's saying the first word, what is that? Let. You know what that means? You have to allow it. Let or allow brotherly love or Christ-like love, phileo love, if you would, continue. He's saying right off the bat in this, kind of one of my big areas of passion is this idea is that we actually have a responsibility as believers in Christ to love other brothers and sisters in Christ. And I tell you, when you go into churches, and I know all of us have been in different churches at different times visiting or whatever, have you ever walked into a place and it felt like, kind of like a funeral? Like you sat there in your spot, you did your thing, you walked out, you didn't communicate with anybody, and that's what you did. There wasn't a lot of fellowship, there wasn't a lot of harmony, that's just kind of what you did. And then you've been in places, probably like here, where you're going to get hugged 15 times before you get down the aisle. And I get that like that. And by the way, don't let us just think, just saying, smiling, saying, hey, is love. Love is a lot further than just that time, chaotic time we have here in the middle of service. It's really extending past that. But the idea of understanding is that we have a responsibility. And this word, he says, brother, and the better word is brother, is the idea of this, is that if we're adopted into the family of God through Christ, we're co-heirs. The scripture says here that you and I have a responsibility to love one another. Now, if I asked you, how much do you feel loved by your spouse or by a family member, you have a pretty good degree of understanding. Now, if I asked you, how much do you feel loved by your brothers and sisters in Christ? How would you answer that? And if you said, well, I don't really feel loved, then I go on to the next part of the, I'm trapping you, ready? How much love do you give to brothers and sisters in Christ? Because remember, the love of Christ is a love that does not demand anything in return. It's not saying, I'm going to love you if you do this. Remember, but God what demonstrated, commended his love toward us. And so right off the bat, this idea is we're to love people. We have a responsibility to the people we do life together with. And by the way, I think that's awesome. We looked at that last week. And the idea of this, we're going to do life together. We're going to meet here at this church. We're going to be part of the church. We're going to do life together, which means there's going to be really cool parts. There's going to be some pretty broken parts. And in those broken parts, that's not where love begins. Love begins back when everything's great. So when things go bad, we just keep hitting it and keep on going. It's second nature in those things. And so you see, let brotherly love continue. He see a concern that Paul's saying in here. But the next part I see this is that not only let our relationship with those that are in Christ, 
but our relationship with those who are outside of Christ. And, and let me read the verses, verses 2 and 3. It says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. So understanding this is not just our relationship with those who are in Christ, but also understand our relationship with those outside of Christ. And I have my notes, this big, big thing here. We cannot have the mindset when it comes with us as believers, with those that aren't believers, we cannot have the idea, ideology of us versus them. And I tell you, that's a prevalent idea in a lot of churches. It's us, it's versus them. That's a very pharisaical way of doing things when you look at that. And this is what he wants to say here. In the terms of our relationships with those outside of our community, what is he telling us to do here? Show hospitality. Show hospitality to those that are without. The idea is even the idea is fellowshipping. And if you look at fellowshipping in Bible terms, that was people in their homes. That was spending hours together. It's having the idea of saying, hey, it's not us versus them. It's not them. Let's keep them away. And what I mean by that is, and you, you've heard me kind of make this plea a little bit to, and kind of even make fun of the idea of the, the fear monger mentality that almost those that are without Christ have a disease. And let's just be honest. As believers, sometimes we treat unbelievers as if they have a disease. Oh, man, they, they do this right here. Man, this is, my kid's going to be a drunk one day, and they're going to kill me in my sleep and listen to Metallica, and this is what's going to happen. If my kids hang out with those kids, or if I'm around, that's what's going to happen. And that mentality, really growing up, I, I got a lot of that pumped into me. Now, I always thought this was funny. You ever, ever had this thought? Well, I want, I don't want those kids to hang around my kids because you know, those are not good kids, okay? But then you want your kids to hang out with what? The good kids, right? So it's like, I want my kids to hang out with the good kids, but I don't want these kids to hang out with my kids. I was like, so what do people look at your kids like? You know what I mean? It's like, I want my kid to be around kids that are better than them, but I don't want kids that are further down the line, so to speak, to be with them. Now, I understand God's given us the, the, the responsibility to protect. But we don't do it in the idea of protecting our family and protecting ourselves to the idea of isolating. I, I tell you, it's, it's, I know I've said it before, it's not original with me, but Jesus ate in the homes of prostitutes. We're talking about tax collectors, public sinful people, and he sat at the table with them, ate with them, stayed there he didn't dine and dash and he didn't really care who knew him remember even the pharisee says doesn't your master know doesn't he know what they're doing and so it's this idea of saying you know hey i'm not going to treat other people like that you know the idea is that we we can't be that way because here's the idea if it's right to have the mentality of us versus them is that we are stay away from them because they have a disease boy i'm sure glad someone didn't look at me that way before i came to christ because we got to remember, we weren't always saved, right? That we came to Christ. Somebody brought us in and looking at it that way, you know, and just kind of just understanding that. Now, I will tell you a verse that I think really gets twisted in this way a lot. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. I've heard people say that as a reason why you never associate with people that are lost. The problem is, it's pretty clear this part of Scripture here doesn't agree with that thinking. So one passage is not really saying that. Is the Bible contradicting? No. It's not contradicting. It's talking about partaking of sin. Jesus ate with sinners. 
but Jesus did not participate with sinners. And there's a huge difference there in that. And so when you see here this mentality of not have the mentality of us versus them, it's kind of funny when you read this part here. In verse 2 he says, Be not forgivable to entertain strangers, for those sometimes entertain angels unaware. And talking about these things, you know what he basically, Jesus is, uh, Paul's saying here, I think the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's saying cook them a meal. In those days, he said, cook them a meal. Have these people in your home. Let them see you. You know, it's kind of like, I forgot who said it. I think it was Paul Tripp said, one of the highest responsibilities of Christians in the way they live their lives is to make Christ look attractive to those that are lost. Try to do, in the way I live my life, do I make Christ look appealing? Or the way I live my life, make Christ look like a taskmaster? That's something that really doesn't exist. It's just a nice old grandpa that sits there and you just kind of acknowledge everything. I mean, how do you make Christ look in those ideas and understanding that and the ideas of doing that? And, and part of the reason I say that because of because I read a lot of things with, in church history and things going on in church today. You want to know one of the biggest things that I hear over and over again? Churches are dying. Churches aren't growing. Churches are and I want to look at them and say, but when you treat people like they're sick, if you treat lost people like they got the coronavirus, how are you going to grow? It ain't going to happen. You got to go out there and be among them. You got to do those things. And I believe our church does a good job of that. And I want us to continue to do that, you know, to continually go out and try to do that. I read a statistic that was saying uh, this. They said at the current rate, there's anywhere up to 30 to 40 churches. Of, and this is all different denominations, of course that close every single week in our country. 30 to 40, close. Some of those, a lot of them are really, really small that just kind of start and don't get going. They said if you just take the numbers, by the time you get 2035, one-third of the churches you have today will still be in existence in our country. One-third. That's not a lot of churches when you think about it. And so just the idea of this, is that they would cease to exist. So we have to do that. We have to be out there. And I know we do I know we do some of that, but I just encourage you. You're going to be out there at Walmart. You're going to be out there getting coffee, whatever. Get to know those people's names. You know, people that, anybody out here other than me seem to bump into the same person at whatever store they go to. It's like, hey, I just saw you. Oh, you know what I want. Okay, good. That way, you know, you have those conversations. Get on a first name basis with them. Let them know who you are. You know, do those things. Build those relationships. I tell you, the, the, the whole part of the Bible in salvation is all about a relationship. It's about a relationship, and we are to mimic those things. And, and I understand not everybody is going to have the same preferences. Not everybody in this room has the same preferences, <laughs> you know, as far as the things. Not everybody that lives at 175 Hodges Lake Road has the same preferences. Rachel and I have different preferences. But that's okay, but we have to realize what's the point. What's the main reason that we gather? What's the main reason that we do these things? And it's not to cater to each other. It's not to cater to each other's wants or preferences. It is what are we to do? To glorify God, to show and manifest the glory of God. You know, I kind of thought about it like this. So, you know, we just had this thing uh, Sunday with Hannah. I really enjoyed that. I mean, I appreciate everybody that gave to that. Um, i go ahead and tell you this. It was, it was a lot of money that came in. It was over $1,600 that came in in that service for Hannah. And I praise God for that. That's awesome thing. But let's just say Hannah says, hey, Brother Phil, I just wanted to let you know, thank you for that. Um, I'm going to Japan, but I'm not going to eat the food. I'm not going to speak the language, and I'm not going to dress the way that they dress. You know, we'd probably look at Hannah and say, you ain't going. 
because she's going to a culture. The culture is not sin. She's going to have to adapt to that culture, correct? She's probably, I don't know, she might love that type of food, you know. She, she might learn she likes it. Some of it I'm pretty sure she's going to look at and say, I'm not even going to find out if I like it or not. I'm not going to eat that, okay? You know, you know the clothes, she might say, well, I don't know if I want to wear this. And she might find things she likes. And that's the same thing in the body of believers that gathers together. Is that some things that we grew up saying, I, no, no, no. Just might be the very thing God says, but I can bless you through this. I can, you can worship me through this. And we can see those things. And, and just kind of understanding the idea of those the thing, and not just really to stand on mission at the idea, the whole point of we have to have relationships with those that are outside of Christ. We have to. We have to have that. And then you even see in verse 3 where it talks about those that are in bonds, those that are bound, those that suffer adversity. It goes on to the idea that you can't, we can't turn a deaf ear, Paul saying, to those that are oppressed, those that are in prison, that you got to have that. It kind of reminds me of this. If you remember, and I wrote this down, in Matthew 25, Jesus basically tells a story of Judgment Day, and he kind of separates the, separates the men and the women, and then he basically looks at them, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, and says, hey, I was thirsty, and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. And he said, I was in prison, and nobody visited me. And this is in Matthew 25. You have to look there to get every verbatim there. And all of them looked around and said, what are you talking about? When were you in prison? When did you need clothes? When did you need this? When were you oppressed? And remember what he said to them? What you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. What you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. And that's the mentality is that we do that for the Lord and understanding those things. In that, so it's kind of interesting. Like I said, this hodgepodge he kind of starts off with relationships, and then you get to verse number four. <laughs> this kind of almost seems out of the blue here. It says, "Marriage is honorable and all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God would judge." Does that kind of not feel like you take a left-hand turn right there, or is that just me? All right. So, by the way, chapter thirteen is a verse that is a chapter that people grab a verse and come back. You don't say, "Hey, we're going to go through 13. Okay, you're like, why are you doing it? Because that's what God wants us to do. So we keep going, okay? But here's what I want you to understand. It sounds really, really harsh, but practically what he is saying is this. He says, okay, you're, you're going to live in this world. You're going to love on the brothers. You're going to love on strangers. You're going to give to the oppressed. He's saying, but there's something else you need to remember. He says, you've got to protect your marriage. You've got to contend for it, and you've got to fight for it. He's saying, if I've got very few, very little bit of time to tell you, he's saying, yes, you need to love people. Yes, you need to give to people. Yes, you need to do this. He's saying, but don't, in the process of doing all of that, lose your family. If I do, if I'm an awesome pastor, I'm not, but if I'm an awesome pastor and I fail in my marriage, I have failed. Period. I didn't fail as a husband. I have failed. Period. Period. That's what it is. And that's what it would be. And that's what he's saying here in this passage. Hey, you're going to love, let brotherly love continue. You're going to reach out to those that are in need. You're going to love to those without Christ. He's saying, but hey, don't fall. Don't mess up what God's given you. Don't mess that thing up that he's given you. He's saying you've got to guard it. You've got to contend for the health of that. And, and, and kind of the interesting thing here, because verse 4 really goes down with verses 5 and 6, because he's basically saying here's going to be two killers for you. One's going to be messing up in your marriage, and the other one's going to be money. 
in the situation of how you seek that and go after that. And what he's trying to tell them here, that marriage is difficult, contend for it, fight for it. And we say, well, we do. Well, I will tell you something, and I just think this, and I know people in my life and people I see here, there's an unbelievable amount of power or respect I have when I hear a man that'll get up and talk about how passionately he loves his wife. I ain't talking about being dirty. I'm talking about just how passionately, selflessly loves his wife. That'll make a room full of men quiet and listen because we all desire that, just being honest with you. That will, that's what it does. And, and that's what he's talking about here. And they say, wait a minute, the Bible says here, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Let me kind of explain to you what this word judgment here means. It means if you don't take care of it, there's going to be severe pain that comes. He's saying if you don't take care of this thing and you don't contend for your marriage and it explodes, there's going to be deep, deep pain. And here's the thing. I know there's people that go and come in our church and our church has got people that have never been married, some have been married, some have been divorced, some have been remarried. And you know what I love about what it's talking about here? As he kind of continue talking about, there's a lot of pain, but guess what there also is? Grace. Love grace. So much grace in Christ. And that's the warning that he's giving here. He's saying here, listen, because pain always comes when you don't protect these different things. And you look at these things. And just understanding the idea of that. But then he goes on to this next one. So he talks about guarding the marriages. But look what he says in verse number 5 and 6. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be with content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. So he's saying, hey, let me give you a danger. He said, the danger is be careful, fight for, contend for your marriage. Don't lose your marriage while you're out here doing all this other stuff which are good things, but he's saying also something that I think is this. He's saying, you've really got to watch this whole thing, idea of contentment. And by the way, I have heard verses 5 and 6 preached very poorly. Normally it's because an offering plate's following right after that because there's a desire behind it. But if I can tell you, in understanding this, I've heard this passage preached all kinds of ways to try to make people that are wealthy feel guilty. Wealth is not a sin. The relentless, selfish pursuit of it is. The Bible says that money is not the root of all evil. That love, that selfish, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to be even in or out of God's will. I don't care to get it. The Bible says that's, that's evil. It's the root of all evil in that. And so that's why he's saying here in this passage, and let your conversation or your lifestyle be without covetousness and be content with such things you have. You know what he's saying? As believers... We should work hard. On our jobs, we should work hard. We should do what we should do. We need to do all that. You know why? And if wealth comes, great. And if wealth doesn't come, fine. There's nothing wrong with the wealth. The problem is the pursuit of that. How do you pursue that? Why the motives behind you doing it? And I think it's true. And the idea, this universal truth of being content is this. How many of you at some point in your life lived in a very, very small house apartment or something like that yeah you're like i'm still living there okay i got it i got it it." it's like phil i'm going the opposite way the first apartment that rachel and i lived in we got blessed because we were supposed to be a one-bedroom apartment and the guy sold the last one or rented out the last one so we showed up and he's like hey got you a two-bedroom one we thought 
we were moving on up. You know, we thought the life was great. Two bedrooms, apartment. And I remember that. And after being there a while, it kind of like got, be nice to kind of have our own space, right? Be kind of nice to have somewhere bigger. But can I tell you something? I wonder sometimes if I was more content in that apartment than I am sitting where I am now. If you can't be content with 800 square foot, you're not going to be content with 8,000 square foot. Just telling you. It ain't going to happen. It's kind of like this. Um, you know, I think about that because here's the thing. We, there's nothing wrong with liking things. Trust me, when I'm driving that 97 Nissan pickup truck that the primer, it looks like a racing stripe because it's already down the side of it. And I'm letting everybody know I'm right there next to them when I'm driving it. And I pull up to a brand new vehicle and my boys and we're all sitting there like this. And I'm like, Grayson, put it in third gear as we know we're going because the gear shift's right there. And they're looking at it like, there's nothing wrong with looking at it and going, boy, that'd be really cool. But I can't let that drive me. That's not the goal. You know what I mean? It's not the goal. We have to learn contentment. I dare say, more than likely, everybody in this room is driving a better, nicer car today than they were five, ten years ago. And the question is, are we, we got a better car, we got a better this, are we content with it? And that's what he's warning against. He said, you got to watch this contentment. Because here's the thing, if I'm not content, then I don't acknowledge the end of verse 5 where it says, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. We like to use the last part of that verse a lot, but we don't like to use the first part of that that deals with contentment. He's saying, you know what? To truly know that God will never leave you nor forsake you is to understand that you're content in what Christ has given you and where you're at. Which means if I'm not content in the things that God's given me, I'm not acknowledging that he's near me and will never forsake me. I feel forsaken. And he even goes on, if it's not a deep enough wound, he says in verse 6, so that I, we may boldly say the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. See, when I, lose when I become discontent, I tell God that you're not sufficient to be my helper to meet my needs. And I don't think none of us would ever verbally say that. But can you tonight, in the contentment that you have, doesn't mean that everything's paid for, don't mean everything's whatever, but can you say in your contentment tonight, the Lord's my helper, or are you still trying to make it all happen? I tell you, I've spent years of my life trying to make it, trying to make it happen. Man, it doesn't work real well. <laughs> it doesn't. But if I can still work the same, same way and lean on Christ, it helps. And so, anyhow, we'll keep going through there. That was, that was fun, I know. All right, so you go down to verse number 7. It says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith also, considering the end of their conversation, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, anybody else thinking this? Did we take another left here, okay? Now, I, I want to be honest with you. Verse number 7 is connected to verse number 17. Obey them which have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Now, I'm going to be really honest with you. I read a lot of sermons and read a lot of commentaries on chapter 13 of Hebrews. One person touched verse 7 and 17. You know why? It's really hard as a pastor to stand up and read and teach these verses. But if I can get you, I'm going to touch it, okay? 
you want to know why it says that if you're at a place that God's put you, it's not about the person that's over you that's in that position. It's the idea of if I, we have to submit ultimately to Christ in our life, and if I can't submit to Christ, then I'm going to have a hard time dealing with a person. And if I can say it like this, find you somebody, and hopefully you find it here, find somebody that you can be under in your life as a believer. Find you a pastor that is so concerned for your soul that that's the main thing, not building them a kingdom. Find you a pastor, if God takes me away tomorrow, find you a pastor that says, I'm going to live my days on earth for the day that I stand before God. Because I don't know if you noticed really that. And I study, I know I, I talk a lot and I get all that. But I don't know if you really understand verse 17. It says, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. And here's why, for they watch for your souls as they that must have give account. I know when I take my last breath, the moment that my eyes are open, I'm going to stand before God and give an account for everything I've done as the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church. And if I may say, no one else in this room is going to have to do that. So that's why I take it seriously. That's why I want to show love and show grace. And when I got to stand, stand. And when we can give, give. But what I'm saying is find that person in your life that can do that. Because I do, I don't take it lightly. I'm, I'm not getting you to say anything about me. It's not the point here. Please don't take it that way. But the idea is, I take it very seriously. This idea that when we pick this book up and we get together and when we're interacting each other's lives and these relationships and when it talks about guarding your marriage and when it talks about being content with the things that God have you, I have to be faithful in those things because the Bible says this. I'm going to give account for that. I'll give account for that. And, you know, and just sitting over here, I found it very interesting that we don't have as many people as we've had the last few weeks. And I feel like God said, so, you really believe verse 17 with 15 people as you did with 47 last week? And I say, yeah. God said, yeah, you have to. Because thank God for the how many of you are here, okay? And that's what you got to do. And, and that's the understanding. And that's what those verses are saying. And the reason, and, and here's one thing I want to help you with, help you help me if I can say it like that. Because what does it say about this idea in the middle of verse 17? That they may do it with joy and not with grief. The people that God puts in your life spiritually, not just me as a pastor, but anybody that God puts as a spiritual authority. The reason that you should listen and submit if, they, if they're going the right way and they're doing the right attitude because you, in turn, can do what you guys do for me every single time, every single day of my life. You give me joy. It's not grief. I tell you, I am a very, very blessed guy. I have a lot of preacher friends, and let me tell you, there's a lot of them right now that don't have a lot of joy. They got a lot of grief. And some of it's self-inflicted. <laughs> some of it's different things. But that's why I said, ultimately, why? Because there's harmony in what we do. Okay. All right, so that was good. We jump off of that, so we keep going. All right, so verse number 9 through verse number 12, just to give you an understanding of this, I'll read it quickly. It says, Be not carried away with divers and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them, which, uh, excuse me, them that have been occupied therein. 
we have an altar whereof they have not no right to eat which serve the tabernacle for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp wherefore jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate all right let me tell you let, let me read verse 19 excuse me verse 13 let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach all right can i tell you what that was he jumped right back to the tabernacle Here's what he's saying. He's saying be very careful of the teaching that you get in your life because the teaching they're going to get is going to push you back to the tabernacle. It's going to push you back to a works salvation. It's going to push you back that you got to do this, 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 and this in your life spiritually. And remember what, see what he said here because to give you an idea, in the tabernacle, here's what they would do. When they would bring the sacrifices and they would sacrifice them, you know what it was? Unless it was a sin offering, the priest had the opportunity to eat it. That's how they lived. But anything offered as a sin offering after it was sacrificed, because it was a sin offering, it was taken outside the camp and burned. See what it said Jesus was? Where was Jesus crucified? Outside the camp. Jesus was the one-time payment for sin. And I can tell you, I could preach a whole long right here. I'm not going to. But Jesus says, you know what? Just like that sacrifice for sin that was cast out and burned and perished. That's what Jesus did. He says, don't let anybody in the first few verses there take you away from the doctrine that Jesus came and Jesus died for your sins so you can trust in him and he is your complete, full, perfect salvation paid in full. Don't run back to the tabernacle and keep doing more offering. And I love that, how it was outside the camp. And where does he tell us to be? He's telling them what, to live inside the, the camp, the tabernacle, work and work and No, he says, stay outside with Christ. Stay outside with Christ. And if I can encourage you with this and understanding, and I'm not doing a good job, I'm, I'm pretty sure of it, you're going to live your Christian life in the tabernacle, working yourself to death, trying to please God, trying to make God happy. Or you can live in the grace of Christ at the foot of the cross and live in the grace and the love of Christ outside the camp where your sins have been paid for. So by the way, you can go out to those that are without Christ. It's hard to be in the tabernacle and reach people outside the tabernacle when you're caught up in that system of thinking and those things. And so anyways, he goes on with this and, and talking a little bit here. Um, love verse 14 where he talks about, uh, verse 15 says, By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. And so you go on here talking about the idea of let, her, let it go to that. And I'll close with this part here in the last few minutes I got here because I wanted to get to these. My favorite verses are the verses I told you at the very beginning, verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever amen that's his final prayer for this entire book now you say what's the big deal with that this kind of sounds like a ritual prayer there you see the very beginning verse 20 now the god of what peace what's all hebrew has been about quit running back to the tabernacle quit working and working trying to get god pleased with you now the god of peace you ever sometimes been so consumed, so 
you're just working through whatever it is in your life and you just put your head down and you just keep going, you keep going and you're working yourself, maybe punishing yourself and you're going through it and then finally get to the point where you just feel like, hey, it's okay. And you finally go, it's like a load off your shoulders. That's what he's saying here. He's saying the God of peace, who does it say, that brought back from again the dead, our Lord Jesus, the one that resurrected Christ. Now, here's what he's saying, and get this. He's saying the God that wants to take you from existence to life. Man, I dare say there's a lot of Christians going around here just existing. They ain't living. Let me ask you that. Are you just existing in your Christian life, or are you living it? Existing is in the tabernacle. Existing is making the sacrifice. Existing is still being not content with the thing. Existing is not fellow. All these things that we're looking at here. Are you living in peace? He says the God of peace. That brought again from the dead Lord. That brought us from the dead. He's saying here that the God moves us out of existence into life. And I like how he says here. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. What? that great shepherd of the sheep. Now, in our century, it doesn't make a lot of sense. First century church, shepherd made a whole lot of sense. He's saying he's not just a shepherd of the sheep. He's the greatest shepherd that there'll ever be. And he will guide you where you need guidance. He will lead you where you need to be led. He will help you. And even if you if you studied much about sheep and different things, as we looked at two weeks ago, when we get so far away from God, he loves us enough sometimes to break a leg. Remember, you ever read that about sheep? If sheep, if there's one sheep that keeps going away, going away, going away, the shepherd will take and actually break one of the legs. You know why? Because he's cruel. No. Because he doesn't want the sheep to go away and something to kill it and eat it. And even to the point where it says a shepherd, before he will give up on a sheep, he will actually make it to a point where he'll break every leg and carry that sheep everywhere they go. Because he doesn't want to see that sheep be destroyed. That's a great shepherd. No, that's a God that hurts me. No, that's a God that loves me enough to hurt me. He's a God that loves me enough that says his comfort doesn't matter. And my comfort doesn't matter. It's making it with him. And then I like verse 21. Like we the end part of the prayer there. Make you perfect. And every good work to do his will. Working you that which is well pleasing in his sight. And like I said, you can preach a whole lot on this. But I want you to understand this as we close this. And like I said, I've really appreciated going through this. When it says, make you perfect in every good work and working in you that which is well pleasing. It's like, you notice it didn't say finished. It said working. Can I tell you that Jesus is pleased with not just the final product. He's pleased with the process. He's not just pleased with the final product of your life. He's pleased in the process. Because I think one of the greatest news in the world is this, is that, that if you're in a hardship or if you're in a struggle or if you're in doubt and you're trying to struggle through this, can I tell you that Christ is working in you for his great pleasure? The process is one of the things that Jesus loves. It's like this. An artist can look at a canvas before even putting the first bit of paint on there and smile. You know why? He or she knows what they're going to create. And they start throwing some colors up there, and you may say, well, that's green. That's blue there. I don't really. But the artist the entire time is smiling because he knows he or she what he's making. The ones on the outside don't. 
And when it says, verse 21, working in you that which is well-pleasing, it's telling you that Jesus is just as much in love with the process he's doing through you as he's going to do with the final product when you stand before him. And that's hard to understand. That's hard to swallow sometimes. And just understand that he loves the process in that. I appreciate you.